Cases submitted. We'll hear argument now in number 112 original, Wyoming against Oklahoma. Mr. Leader, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, you are asked today, I believe, to establish a dangerous precedent. Not a dangerous precedent in the area of Commerce Clause law, but a dangerous precedent in the area of your original jurisdiction. For today, in this original action, Wyoming makes a Commerce Clause challenge to an Oklahoma law that requires coal-burning utilities in Oklahoma who sell to Oklahoma consumers to burn at least 10% coal. This challenge is brought, however, on the basis of an indirect taxing interest, an interest in collecting coal severance tax. The essence of Wyoming's claim is that Oklahoma's law results in the private Wyoming coal producers having a smaller share of Oklahoma's coal market. This reduction in market share Wyoming argues, and I'll argue later, but I do, does not prove, reduces Wyoming coal production, which in turn lowers severance tax. Oklahoma's position is that the exercise of original jurisdiction to adjudicate a Commerce Clause challenge based on an alleged indirect loss of tax revenue is one, inappropriate, two, not necessarily, and will very likely popularize a new trend, which I'll refer to as end running. And I'll discuss that new trend in a moment. As this court has recognized, the exercise of original jurisdiction by this court is a serious intrusion on society's interest in the court's most deliberate and considerate performance of its paramount role as a supreme federal appellate court. And original jurisdiction should only be assumed when justified by the strictest necessity. To permit a state to maintain a Commerce Clause challenge to protect an indirect tax interest is not strictly necessary and not appropriate because it invites mischief. It invites a new game, a game called end running, where someone who is engaged in commerce and the commerce is taxed and they want to challenge another state statute but they don't want to have to come up to the district court and the appeal system, and runs the traditional system by going to the government and saying, you tax this, you bring an original action. And then we wind up with a appearance of state qua state, saying we're interested in our taxes. You suggest that the taxpayer is going to invite the state to impose the tax just so it can run, a, run this end run? I am not, but we are dealing with commerce, Your Honor. And almost everything that moves in commerce is at one place taxed, one place or another taxed by the state. And that's why it's so dangerous in this particular area. Are you suggesting the state doesn't care that it loses tax revenues? I'm I'm saying the state certainly does care 
but I'm stating it's not necessary for the state to come here to get relief. It's not, and therefore original jurisdiction shouldn't allow. Secondly, I'm saying the danger is that we have the appearance of state qua state, but we really have state qua shill for the local industry. Mr. Leader, yes. what, what are, would be the perceived advantages from the point of view of the Commerce Clause plaintiff in going f for original jurisdiction rather than in coming up through the, either the state or federal court system? Having a final answer for the entire country that don't have to worry about being overturned uh, so simply another time. Secondly, I assume it's proceeded as speedier. If you get here uh, and can start here, you're the court, you'll become the court of or the former first choice. It saves time and money because you don't have all those layers of litigation. So there are several advantages here that would invite the danger. I understand how we, how we come off, uh, you, you mean whenever a state has a valid interest and a sufficient interest to confer standing, your, uh, Article 3 standing, we should still and all inquire case by case whether somehow that interest is what, significant enough to, to justify the risk of end running that you referred to? I mean, I, I can understand an argument that there's no state interest here or, or not, not the, the sufficiently direct interest that would confer standing, but that's not the argument you're making. Uh, that's, that'll be my second argument, Your Honor. I see. My first argument is because of the dangers involved here and because of the other forms that are available, the strictest necessity test simply is not met in this kind of case. Um, Chris, may I just suggest this with respect to the, these dangers and the parade of horribles? It seems to me we're, we're in a pretty good position to control those dangers. That is, if we think there are an awful lot of these complaints being filed, we do not have to take, you know, allow the complaints to be filed. You, you may control them, but that you're still your do docket gets clogged up. Well, I would just deny a leave to file a bill of complaint. Even that takes time, and other people well, get to that doesn't take an awful lot of time. <laughs> 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 the use of original jurisdiction is not necessary here because, first, the real parties of interest, the Wyoming coal producers, have both federal and state courts available to them. And surely if this indirect tax interest is enough to justify the cost of litigation, the direct impact would, equal, would motivate uh, the actual movers in commerce similarly. Uh, secondly, the state could have sued the state utility companies here in either state or federal court and sought injunctive relief. And um, uh, declaratory judgment. The state is also not prohibited from encouraging the people who are actually affected from bringing suit. The state's not prohibited from helping uh, the movers in commerce from bringing the action or, given the proper appropriation, not prohibited from funding it. In short, there are sufficient alternatives to have this issue resolved and the strict necessity which you say is which to guard your original jurisdiction has not been met here. We say the special master erred in finding that this was an appropriate case for original jurisdiction. Secondly, we say that the special master erred in finding that this indirect tax interest conferred sufficient standing. There's no Supreme Court case that we've been able to find that recognizes this indirect taxing interest as justifying standing. We would urge the court to follow the teachings of the D.C. Circuit 
Court of Appeals case in Philadelphia versus Kelp. In that case, the state of Pennsylvania sued the Small Business Administration, challenging that agency's classification of a hurricane damage area as a Class B disaster. Pennsylvania claimed that its taxing revenue and economy were damaged by the mistaken classification. The Court of Appeals rejected this vicarious injury as the basis of standing, saying, impairment of state tax revenue should not, in general, be recognized as sufficient injury in fact to support state standing. And the Court goes on and says we need a direct link between the state statute and the collection of taxes. And then says this would prevent state standing in cases like the present one, where the diminution of tax receipts is largely an incidental result of the challenged activity. Now, even if on occasion this indirect taxing collection interest could justify standing, that interest has not been shown here. As this Court noted in Duke Power Company versus California Environmental Study Group, to show standing, a plaintiff must, one, show direct and palpable injury to the plaintiff, and a fairly traceable causal connection between the claimed injury and the challenged conduct. Here, Wyoming has failed to prove those elements. What did it prove, Mr. Leder, in the way of lost revenue because of the existence of the Oklahoma statutes? What it proved was that a share of the market has been denied to Wyoming producers. It introduced no evidence that demonstrated that the loss of that market share converted automatically into less production in Wyoming. This is a severance tax, not a sales tax. This is a severance tax, not a sales tax. It is taxed on the removal for the privilege of removing it from the ground, whether there's a sale or not. Did Wyoming introduce any statistics to show that there was less coal removed from the ground as a result of Oklahoma statutes? Quite the contrary. The evidence here, Your Honor, shows that since the act has gone into effect, Wyoming has produced more coal, and it continues to produce more coal year after year after year. In fact, the second year after this act, when Oklahoma's act went into effect, there was more coal sold in Oklahoma. They simply have not shown there is a connection between this lost market share of the producers and their severance tax collection. They offer two pieces of evidence to attempt to show it. One is an affidavit of Richard Marple, who's the director of Wyoming Mining Tax Division. His affidavit just assumes that there's a direct one-to-one relationship. If you lose a sale of one ton of coal or you have a sale of Oklahoma coal in Oklahoma, that's an automatic loss of tax revenue, and he just multiplies. But he's assuming what's never been proved. The second piece of evidence is why did they pass this statute? Why did who pass the statute? The Oklahoma legislature. Didn't they assume it would cause the utilities to buy Oklahoma coal they would otherwise buy from Wyoming? They assumed. Go ahead. Sure. They passed it for a variety of reasons. It was to limit the utilities' reliance on this umbilical cord, this railroad that connects it to its source of energy, and to see that any cutoff in that energy would be removed. Yes, but the method of doing that was to increase purchases of local coal. That's right. And decrease purchases of Wyoming coal. That's right. So can't we kind of presume that's what's happened? 
You can presume that Wyoming the loses. The that they bought Oklahoma have, coal, that that would be coal. They've, lost, they've lost some market share in Oklahoma. What you can't presume is that that loss of market share in Oklahoma means they had a bad year. Oh, they didn't know, but they would have sold that coal to Oklahoma had Oklahoma statute not required the purchase of and perhaps, Oklahoma coal. But what we don't know is what their, what their production is like. Do they have manpower difficulties? Are they having a hard time meeting their present demands now? Uh, are they selling out a stockpile? We do not know the relationship between this lost market share and what's produced in Wyoming. That's the missing link here. Even if, let me talk about the second piece of evidence, was an affidavit from Mr. Cartwright from uh, Trident Oil Company. His affidavit merely says that he has a contract to sell coal with one of the utilities and he can meet that contract. He doesn't say how it affects his total production. He doesn't say how he meets it. He doesn't say how he's meeting out of stockpiles. This evidence at best is vague and suggestive and clearly does not meet the standard in your original jurisdiction cases. You require the plaintiff to show their case by clear and convincing evidence. There is no clear and convincing evidence in this case showing a relationship between the lost market share in Oklahoma and the ultimate production of Wyoming coal producers. In fact, the evidence suggests that Wyoming coal producers keep producing more and more coal. Now, as to Oklahoma statute itself, Oklahoma freely admits that its statute does not, in the constitutional sense, treat all even-handedly and that, in fact, it does aid coal production in Oklahoma. Part of this difference is based upon the difference in the properties of coal in each state. As the uncontradicted stipulated facts show, Oklahoma coal has much higher BTU. It takes approximately a pound and a half of Wyoming coal to equal the burning power, the BTU power, of Oklahoma coal. Oklahoma coal is a high sulfur content, and Wyoming has a low sulfur content. The purpose of the statute was to aid utilities reduce and limit its reliance on this coal production connected by a single railroad, now two railroads, and to see that if there's a shutoff of fuel, they have some protection against those dangers there. How do, we this know, is how do we know that's the purpose, as opposed to um, sure. sheer economic protectionism? Right. Yeah, because um, right. uh, that's what I would have guessed it was. If you didn't tell me, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think we determine the, the purpose of the statute when you don't have legislative history for the act by looking at the statute and its effect. Clearly, the act has the effect that you talk about. It also has the effects that I talk about. I emphasize the effects that I think are more legitimate, and they emphasize the effects they think are least legitimate. But I think it's fair to presume that all those were intents of the, of the legislature. But we are dealing here with an area where the state has, in the past, been given a great deal of deference. This court has found that a state has a clear and substantial governmental interest in determining the need, the reliability, cost, and other related matters with respect to utility. I mean, after all, the state has an obligation to keep the lights on. Society has a great need for that. Here, now, I, I was really asking for something more specific. Is there, you're not relying upon some legislative history. We, we do not have legislative history. And the title of it, you, the state does not even have it? 
I mean, the state does not keep it? We, we, don't, we don't have a legislative in, committee. How, we, we how enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> but we're... One. <laughs> Only that if you're lucky. <laughs> in the utility area, the state franchises utilities. We make them monopolies. We set them up to do business for the people's good. We guarantee them a fair rate of return. We set their rates. We control and limit many of their business decisions. To a real, in a real sense, the state and utilities are partners for the good of the people. And I maintain that in this area, the state should be given more deference as it is given deference when the state is a market participant. We are not quite a market participant here, but we are closer to that than a mere regulator. And I ask that this court give the states greater deference in this area. Now, if the court should decide not to give greater deference to us in this area, at least as to respect of the state-owned utility, the Grand River Dam Authority, that is a market participant, and your market participation doctrine protects the state against the challenge. There's a severability argument here, and I think it's a red herring. If we were to test this statute, clearly and only as to the Grand River Dam Authority, it would be constitutional. It could be applied. We are dealing with an application of a statute, not a severance here. It is clear in Oklahoma, and we use Oklahoma law to determine these areas, it's Oklahoma statute, and a familiar rule of Oklahoma law is that an act of the legislature, while invalid and inoperative as to one set of facts, may be constitutional and valid as to another and different set of facts. Additionally, Oklahoma's jurisprudence provides that where a statute on its face is applicable to several classes of persons or cases, the constitutionality of the statute as applied to one class may be upheld at the same time as its applicability to another class is stricken down as unconstitutional. When such a situation arises, the statute is only entirely void where it is clear that the legislature intended it to be. We don't have such a clear intention here. The Oklahoma legislature, had in fact, has a severability clause attached to this act. In conclusion, let me note Chief Justice Fuller's comment in Louisiana versus Texas. In that case, in commenting on original jurisdiction, Chief Justice Fuller said, it is apparent that the jurisdiction is of so delicate and grave a character that it was not contemplated that it would be exercised save when the necessity was absolute and the matter itself properly adjudicatable. I urge this court to adhere to Justice Fuller's teachings and dismiss this original action because it is not necessary. There are other forms available to have this issue answered. And secondly, because it is not a justiciable issue, Wyoming having failed to show standing. I thank the court. I reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Leader. Uh, we'll hear now from you, Ms. Guthrie. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The Oklahoma statute with the, which the state of Wyoming has challenged is a classic example of economic protectionism. 
The statute is discriminatory because it has disrupted the current coal market by forcing Oklahoma utilities to purchase Oklahoma coal rather than the Wyoming coal that they were purchasing until the statute was passed. We urge this court to adopt the special master's recommendation that you find the Oklahoma statute unconstitutional under the Commerce Clause. The statute is invalid because it is, on its face, discriminates against interstate commerce. It forces Oklahoma utilities that sell power to Oklahoma consumers to buy Oklahoma coal. This explicit discrimination is the most blatant kind of economic protectionism that this court, on many instances, has invalidated. Are you going to go into the question of standing at all, Ms. Guthrie? Yes, I will address that now, Mr. Chief Justice. At your convenience. How come you're not the coal company? I mean, why didn't the coal company bring this lawsuit? Well, I don't know. Is there some some explanation for that? I Um, mean, if they're losing money, one would think that they'd be as interested in it as you are, unless you have a 100% severance tax. No, we don't. Our severance tax is 8.5%. The assumption would be that perhaps they have chosen for political purposes not to rock the boat. Uh, Perhaps coal companies make so much money anyway that it doesn't matter. However, the injury that the state of Wyoming has sustained to the tune of at least a half a million dollars a year is certainly a significant interest and and injury as far as we are concerned. How how was the half a million dollars a year proven, Ms. Gutt? There was an affidavit prepared by a person from our tax division who looked at the amount of coal that had not been sold in Oklahoma and estimated how much that would be. That information was in no way, way rebutted by the state of Oklahoma. Well, the burden of proof would be on the state of Wyoming, I suppose, on that issue, because it's the plaintiff. And I suppose the, the special master could make a finding that uh, Wyoming lost a certain amount of money. Uh, did the special master make any finding like that? Yes, he referred to the loss of severance taxes, and he determined that there were those direct injuries as the result of our loss of of severance taxes because of the statute. Did he make any finding as to dollar amount? I don't recall if he did or not. I think that he did make that finding. It seems to me that the, the, your, your affidavit, uh, while it would perhaps support a finding of loss, uh, doesn't rule out the possibility that uh, the pro- coal production in Wyoming didn't sell in Oklahoma, it might have, might have found a market for elsewhere. The affidavit doesn't say that Wyoming lost tax revenues. The affidavit does say that the state of Wyoming lost a half a million dollars in tax revenues because of coal that had not been sold to Oklahoma utilities. Well, but that, that doesn't indicate that that same coal that would otherwise have been sold to Oklahoma might not have been sold elsewhere. That doesn't really uh, um, affect the state of Wyoming's sale. This, uh, the, amount that, the question that you really have to look at is the injury to the state of Wyoming as a result of, the, of lack of Oklahoma sales. Regardless of whether Wyoming sold coal in other places, it has lost the sale to the Oklahoma producers, or Oklahoma well, utilities. It's, you know, I, I'm not saying that there, that's not a reasonable position, but it doesn't seem it's, it's the only one. Supposing that Wyoming in 1988 took in $5 million in severance tax revenues. Then in 1989, it also takes in $5 million in severance tax revenue. In 1989, a certain amount of coal that was previously sold to Oklahoma isn't, but it's sold in Utah instead. How how, how is Wyoming the loser? We have a stipulation that uh, provides that until about 1986, virtually 100% of all the coal burned in Oklahoma came from Wyoming. 
And since that time, after the statute has been passed, the amount of coal that has been sold to Oklahoma has been reduced. There was a report that was prepared by two economic uh, fuel specialists who uh, said that but for the act, the state of of Wyoming's coal producers would have still continued to sell virtually 100% of the coal to Oklahoma plants. So there are facts that would support the fact that this statute has changed the way that uh, electric utilities in the state of Oklahoma make their fuel choices. So even though your theory is even though Wyoming did not lose a penny in its severance tax revenues are as high as ever, if some of the severance taxes were imposed on coal sold in Utah as replacements for the sale that wasn't sold in Oklahoma, it can still bring this action. Our position is is that because the act was passed, we can fairly trace an injury um, to the collection of severance taxes. The state of Wyoming has a great deal of coal uh, capacity that is not sold every year. So we have, as uh, producers and then as, as tax people, have uh, experienced an injury as a result of this act. It's also possible, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, that other states could then begin to enact these kinds of acts, and then states like Wyoming would really begin to experience a tremendous injury as a result of, of this kind of discriminatory um, legislation. Ms. Guthrie, let me be sure about one fact. Uh, didn't Oklahoma move to dismiss the original action? This court has viewed the standing issue. This is the third time the court has viewed the standing issue. The first time they filed a motion to dis- they filed a response to our motion for leave to file a complaint, and the court uh, ordered the uh, state of Oklahoma to answer. So and one could almost argue that the standing issue already has been decided up here. I would argue that, but if I'm getting questions from the court, I wouldn't be so. Uh, abrupt to make that kind of argument. But the standard, standing issue, because then the motion to dismiss based on standing was denied. Then the whole issue was brought up again in front of Judge Tone, who had been selected as a special master, and he also made a determination that standing, that the state of Wyoming did have standing in this case because we had suffered an injury. So he didn't think we had decided it anyway? Well, he probably thought you'd decided it, but he wanted to decide it again. You just want to decide it again? Uh-huh. He did an awfully good job, too. <laughs> Ms. Guthrie, I have a problem that, that I, I guess it's, it's a little, it, it's even more fundamental. You, you've, been, you've been asked about um, the proof of, of the damages. Let's assume that, uh, let's assume that, uh, that it could be proven in this case that, uh, that there would have been more sales. Uh, um, w- would that necessarily establish standing? I mean, standing requires not only that there be uh, an injury, at least our prudential rules require both an injury and a direct injury. I mean, I think, haven't we adopted standing rules that are similar to the rule that we adopted in the antitrust field in Illinois brick, which prevents a secondary uh, injury from, uh, from uh, a secondary purchaser whose, whose price has been inflated by a Sherman Act conspiracy from, from recovering triple damages? Isn't it the same thing here? I have never heard of a state suing for loss of taxes before? I mean, let's assume a, an ordinary contract case where somebody is guilty of a breach of contract, an enormous amount of money, a great big contract. Do you think the state could sue for the loss of sales tax revenue from, from that breach of contract? No, the state couldn't in that instance, but that is, is certainly what? not the, the kind of case that's presented here because we are directly uh, collecting taxes as a result of the sale of coal. The, the cases that, to which Mr. Leader refers are cases that are this, this injury 
to the general kind of taxing power of a state. Maybe a state will, in fact, have to assess more taxes to pay for some kind of service that they weren't able to provide. No, I'm talking about a sales tax. It's it's very clear that had this contract been performed, the sale would have occurred, the state would have gotten X dollars from the sale, and there's a breach of the contract, and and it seems to me, I I doubt very much whether the the, the state would have any cause of action for that, as a, a person harmed by that breach of contract, have any standing to complain about it. Well, we must look at this, though, in the context of the Commerce Clause and also the fact that this is legislation that has harmed one state uh, to the benefit of another state's uh, uh, residents. We, we usually leave it to the people immediately affected, in this case the coal company, and, and, and you said these statutes could be passed in a lot of states. I suppose they could, but I don't, I don't imagine the coal companies would, would sit idly by while that was happening. It's, it's not as though we wouldn't have an opportunity to, to remedy the matter. Well, you referred to the prudential kind of limitations that the court has undertaken to sift out the cases it doesn't want to hear. And by, um, you certainly have developed a great number of, of rules that deal with standing of original actions. And I would say that this is the kind of case that uh, requires an, an original action being taken. You've had a serious claim. We certainly are, are challenging the, the fact that the statute uh, has violated the Commerce Clause. It's not a trivial matter at all. There is this direct injury. Now, the state of Oklahoma says it's not direct, but they have certainly never shown you through any kind of, or there was no evidence that this, this uh, injury that we suffered was not direct. It's just his saying that it's not direct, and I guess it's my saying that it is direct. It certainly is direct so far as the state of Wyoming is concerned because of the way that we use that money and that we uh, do impose that tax. But there are several different prudential rules that you have adopted, and I would suggest that virtually all the... Uh, qualities that you say that you look for in an original action are similar to this one. In Maryland versus Louisiana, this court accepted original jurisdiction, and it was also a Commerce Clause challenge. I think also in another case, Pennsylvania versus West Virginia. So I think the implication of the Commerce Clause and additionally adds another feature that you might not have seen in some of the, the other cases that... The import of my question doesn't go to whether we should take the original action or not. It goes to whether, whether we should think they're standing in the federal courts anywhere, not just here. So I agree with you to that extent. Once this court has determined that the state of Wyoming does have standing, you must determine that the statute is invalid because it's invalid on its face. It's also invalid in its purpose. An examination of a resolution that was passed by the state of Oklahoma in 1985, a year before the statute was passed, will show you the kinds of things that were motivating uh, legislators from Oklahoma. They referred to the fact that over $300 million had gone out of state because ratepayers were paying for Wyoming coal, and $9 million had been assessed in Wyoming severance taxes. They said that the purpose of encouraging utilities to use um, Oklahoma coal would be to enhance the economy. Again, a classic sort of example of the kinds of things that this court has disapproved of because it is a discriminatory purpose. There was only one purpose for this statute to be passed, and that was to encourage the use of Oklahoma coal. Uh, The state of Oklahoma provided no evidence in this proceeding uh, through affidavits or even in the statement of material facts to the special master that would anyway show that there was any kind of purpose besides some kind of discriminatory economic purpose. There is a very definite protectionist effect also of the, the law The result means that there will be a sale of less coal to the state of Wyoming. We 
acquired the services of an economist who came up with several different ideas about why Oklahoma coal was being used, and the whole conclusion that they all reached was that it was only because of the interference of the statute. The state of Wyoming asks this court to declare the Oklahoma statute unconstitutional as an example of simple economic protectionism and to apply your uh, virtually per se rule of invalidity that you have encountered whenever you find a facially discriminatory statute. We also respectfully submit that the court does accept standing in this case. You have already, as Justice Blackman has pointed out, you've already looked at this question twice or three times. Therefore, we request that you do affirm the special master's report. You're not questioning the special master's treatment of the Grand River Dam Authority. That was part of our... Um, uh, we took the exception to the special master's report, and it was not so much the treatment of the Grand River Dam Authority, it was his holding that that statute could be severed. We feel that the statute, as it was written, really, once the invalid portions are removed, cannot be... Uh, Validated. The statute reads all entities that sell electrical power to consumers in Oklahoma once you must buy Oklahoma coal. Once you get rid of that uh, invalid portion, there's nothing left in the statute. Well, uh, you think that's necessarily so? Uh, well, that's the I take it you oppose. You oppose. You didn't think the special master uh, should have suggested uh, your resolving severability in the state court. That was true as well, Justice. And. Uh, I take it you then think it would be wholly improper for us to uh, certify a question to the, to the Oklahoma Supreme Court as to the severability of this statute. Well, that was the argument that we made, uh, the idea being that it's really not a, it's a demeaning sort of thing to take a, a state, one state into another state's court. So from that aspect, it would be Well, more we wouldn't be taking a, a certification, wouldn't be taking a, was stayed into a state court. The, we would certify the question, and the court would just give us the answer. I'll bring it back to you. Well, I would just suggest that um, Oklahoma judges, like o Oklahoma legislators, are elected, and perhaps we might not have the same kind of impartiality that we would have here. Well, I don't understand that argument because uh, how, how do you, how should the question be decided then? Is it, first of all, let me ask one preliminary question. Mm -hmm. Does Oklahoma have a certification statute, you know? I have no idea. I see. Well, I was puzzled about you saying you, you couldn't go in another jurisdiction, uh, Nevada against Hall. California had to go to Nevada or vice versa. I don't remember which one it was. But there were some kinds of definite, um, there, there had been an accident. I think it was a Nevada but there's state a, employee there's who was injured in between California. between the state and someone else? I don't know why. I don't understand. And, well, and certainly if this court chooses to certify and if the we case, have ruled I'm in, I'm a, if we followed the master's recommendation with respect to the invalidity insofar as the statute applies to the three private utilities, what can you lose by having the matter go to the state Supreme Court? Well, certainly, I would much prefer that you affirm the master's holding that the statute is unconstitutional as it relates to the three private uh, utilities and not worry so much about the GRDA. seems to me that you're waiving your severability argument. Well, I'm not uh, waving it, but I'm not very artfully expressing it, I guess. Uh, it, it's obviously not as big a concern to the state of Wyoming as, the, as the, these other questions are. But I think it is, if you look at the general rule of severability, you would find that the special master did not precisely apply those severability principles. No, but the, but the Oklahoma Attorney General is here representing to us 
that as a matter of Oklahoma law, this is the result that was appropriate, as I understand him. Well, that is assuming that the merits are better. That is his representation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very Thank well, you. Ms. Godfrey. Uh, Mr. Leader, you have 11 minutes remaining. Your Honor, I'll waive rebuttal. Very well. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock. <laughs>